my first experience with Africa was a, a young woman that was in our dormitory suite. You know, she needed, uh, one of the girls fell out of her dance company and she asked me if I would consider dancing because I love to dance. I always was dancing on the floors and, you know. Boy, she started showing us those African movements and I was like, oh, this is it. We're one with the earth. Let's, let's do this. Stephanie Hewley leans into her life's journey by letting her talent guide her. She started as a dancer and evolved into a Broadway producer. Shows like For Colored Girls and Bubbling Brown Sugar are some of the shows she worked on in her career. Her experience in the arts is sure to motivate aspiring artists of any age. I grew up in a small little country town. Um, my grandparents were part of the Great Migration. They probably were on their way to Detroit when they stopped in a little town in Ohio and uh, they had opened a steel mill and so they hired my grandfather's brother who then called all his brothers and said, hey, come on, I found a place that we can make more money than mm -hmm. going to Detroit and working in the car factories. And so I grew up in this little town and um, I grew up in a family that was a very um, multi-ethnic, multicultural family from white to black to Latin. I mean, just everybody was in my family. And so I had a different perspective on race and equality and things like that. My grandfather and them, they were... They were Af the African-Americans that rode into that town on horses with guns. And so they didn't take stuff from white people. And so they made it really clear that we would be black. We'd be, in those days, obviously colored. Mm. Um, but don't be proud of who you are and stand up and, and, you know, speak your mind and say, tell people who you are, not just what color you are. And so I, I grew up with a sense of self-worth. Um, we, we, were, we were clear about who we were. And so my parents were always activists, you know. My father went to the March on Washington. I remember get him getting on the bus. Um, and so they were very much into Dr. King and the Civil Rights Movement. Uh, and then when I went off to college in Ohio, uh, it was the 60s. It was about black power. We went from colored to black. My first experience with Africa was a, a young woman that was in our, in our um, dormitory suite. And so we had this Mayusi ball. And, you know, she needed, uh, one of the girls fell out of her dance company and she asked me if I would consider dancing because I love to dance. I always was dancing on the floors and, you know. And, uh, Boy, she started showing us those African movements, and I was like, oh, this is it. We're one with the earth. Let's, let's mm -hmm. do this. Well, I, in, in those days, I was studying medicine. <laughs> My parents, they had bought me microscopes and all kind of little chemi chemistry sets when I was growing up because that was their intention for me to be a doctor. And uh, I was in pre-med when that happened, when that, when that Mwayusi ball happened. <laughs> And uh, I remember going home, and my, right. I was my it was my senior year, and I told my father I was uh, switching over. Oh my God! <laughs> he said, "What are you gonna be a belly dancer?" Oh wow! <laughs> he said, "You can't earn you can't earn no living dancing. What's the matter with you? You all the way you know all the way there. I mean, I was actually accepted at medical schools, and 
I just, you know, I couldn't do it, but I didn't want to disappoint them so much. So I decided that what I should do is maybe go into medical technology. So I ended up with a degree in medical technology, and I actually went and worked in hospitals and couldn't handle that. And then I went into research, and I, but all the time I was dancing on the side, you know. Did you feel it pulling at you? Oh, like my gosh. you were inclined to, to dance more? You know, it, there's something about dancing that I think we're born with it, you know? It's just some, there's such a freedom, you know? There's just being one with the earth. That African dance was just so a part of the earth and, you know, kind of discovering our blackness too. I mean, we all dance, you know? Um, Do you think that potentially dance, when you say dance is all in us, it's kind of this innate ability to express ourselves and express who we are as opposed to a field where it's more practical because medicine oh, yeah. is, is necessary. It's necessary. And we we it's move. We right. are people. We hear the music. We have a beat. You know, I'm always, I, I'm always kind of, it kind of tickles me to think about, you know, black people who don't have rhythm or don't have a beat or something. I'm like, where'd you grow up? Did you not hear those drums? Did you not, you know, I mean, James Brown was giving us the beat. You know what I mean? It was like, I say it loud. I'm black and I'm proud. There was a beat in there, you know, Soul Train and all those good things of the 60s. So I don't know. I mean, it just kind of, it, it was a, it, for me, it became a passion. Mm. I was driven uh, to just dance. And I was starting late because, you know, college is, most kids had started when they were four, five, six, taking ballet. And, but it kind of was a reverse thing for me. I ended up um, moving to Boston and, uh, I had two sons, and I used to take them to Elma Lewis School of Fine Arts. And, um, you know, I was working in the research laboratory, and I'd drop them off at Elma Lewis's. But then when I'd go back to pick them up, you know, I'd sit and watch, and uh, Baba Tundi Olatunji was a drummer uh, at Elma Lewis School of Fine Arts. He used to come down from New York. And so my sons were taking drum classes, so I would sit in the classes that, where they were drumming for a dance company. And so eventually they, they were in different classes, and so I would end up staying for a couple of hours in between. And so Miss Lewis said to me one day, why aren't you in that day? I said, why don't you take a class? So I thought, okay, well, maybe I will. So I started taking this Afro-Caribbean class that Olatunji was playing for, and George Howard was the uh, instructor. And, um, that was you know, it. I, yeah, that was it. That, <laughs> that was, was it. it for me, you know. And then I saw her company perform in Franklin Park. And I had never seen black girls on point. Mm. They did dances on point, and then they take up shoes off and do gang gang. You know, I mean, it was on. They did Jeffrey Dugla, Jeffrey Holder's piece called Dugla. Oh man, I mean, I've seen Dance Theater of Harlem do it, and they do it magnificently. But that Dolores Brown and that Charles Augins that are here at this conference right now, you should have seen them do Dougla. Oh my God, yeah. it was another story. So I sat in that park mesmerized saying, I, I, I have to do this. Now is Black Girls on Point, that's, an, uh, that's a dance company? No, Black Girls dancing on in point, point in shoes, point but shoes. not doing Giselle not or ballet. Swan Lake. Okay. I'm talking about they were doing, <laughs> you know, really black rooted dances, mm-hmm. movements, you know, in point, on point shoes, right. in point shoes. So it seems like the, the dance, you experiencing the black culture in that dance kind of resonated with you because if your experience as a child with your parents, that was your way of being like, oh, okay, 
I can use this art and express the kind of That's perspective right. that your parents were kind of putting in you, right, when you were yeah, younger. Yeah, just kind of making me aware mm-hmm. that these were possibilities. Right, 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 We right, could right. do this, you know. When I was growing up, I had never seen, even my every now and then my, my mother would take us to see musical theater. She loved musical uh, movies. And once we went to a play, but it was just all white people, you know. So I didn't imagine that. I could do something like that. Right. I never, you know, we didn't have any important. schools for the arts when I was growing up, you know. Um, so seeing this in my early 20s, it just blew me away. And I was like, okay, this is it. I'm sorry. I got to go for this. So I, I left all that research and medicine and, so, you know, but it was it was helpful in the long run because as I pursued a dance career, I was so aware of my body. Yeah, you know, I was really I knew where every muscle was. I to this day I did twist my ankle. I was down there the other day just saying, "Oh no, we know what this little Achilles is. Right, you know, we know where this little muscle's going. <laughs> okay, just get applicable. this one out." Mm-hmm. That's cool. So, real, so when you finished graduating, you oh you finished the the degree the the pre med. I actually did not get my bachelor's right you know, at right at the end of my, my fourth, my senior year, because mm-hmm. at Kent State University, we had one of the first black student unions. It was okay. called Black United Students Together, BUST. And um, uh, we were fighting for black studies, more black uh, faculty. And this history teacher gave me a D because I didn't take the exam at the because the he gave an exam on the day that we walked out protested Mm -hmm. Uh uh-huh and so he gave me a d and so my protest was well forget kent state i'm on my way out of here Mm. so of course my parents were just devastated because i was first generation go to college and they were like you have to graduate you have to so i went off to boston and i ended up getting my uh, finishing my uh coursework Uh, oh because he wouldn't give me credit they wouldn't give me credit for a black studies course that i took Oh, you know, wow. we had one course and I took it and they wouldn't give us give any of us credit. So that is also as a sign of protest. We said, well, well, that's that was already in the curriculum that it, it was, wasn't credit. Well, they had just we were we oh, were integrating see. these things into the curriculum and they were saying, no, we have we did not yeah, acknowledge they didn't this. recognize it. Right. Wow. So we just said, OK. So I ended up taking a course at uh, Northeastern University in Boston and uh, I sent it back to them and got my degree. But, you know, and while I was there, I ended up getting a master's degree. And so our part of our dissertation was creating a school called the Innovative Learning and Training Center, improving that children could learn if you dealt with how they learn. Uh, and we used the arts to help a lot of our young black and brown children uh, learn very complicated subject matters, is math, it, science. So this whole STEM, STEAM thing to me is like, come on. You thought about that years ago. No. <laughs> you know, this, we're back in the 70s, you know. Is that how you got into arts education? It is. Okay. It really is. Um, working on a master's degree. I got into arts education and I was teaching dance. Without the arts and the creative expression, how does a child have a well-rounded life and understand, find those ways that he's able or he or she is able to express themselves in, in meaningful ways and make make measurable contributions to the society that they live in. It's such an interesting idea to uncover how art has been such a foundation in all different disciplines. And I've talked about this you previous You can't guests. take art out of life. You can't you take cannot, art out of life. You can't separate it. There's no, how can you take the color out of the world? You can't. Yeah. So to think that you could teach a child math and science and technology without giving them the, the creative outlet is to 
really develop a an undernourished, you know, child who doesn't who won't reach his full potential. So if you have a student that's more or is leaning towards, I guess, a more scientific or mathematic field, and they have inklings of artistic ability and you guys want to use that to kind of influence them to do better, how do you do it in a way where you're not saying you need to be an artist or how do you how do you still parse it out whereas this is an accessory, not a, a necessary thing that you have to continue in your career? Well, I think, first of all, it's exposure, mm-hmm. you know, how, how you're exposed to something. I mean, I'm always fascinated when people tell me they don't like a certain kind of music. I don't like that. It's like, no, it, you just point. weren't exposed to it. You know, your your exposure to it was probably not at all or very minimal at the least. But I believe that the more we can expose young people to different forms of the art, I mean, good grief, you're you're a hip-hop child, you know? I yeah. mean, what is it that you don't like about music or dance or, or graffiti or, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. The arts, the visual arts. I mean, it's all about your exposure to it uh, and then giving them opportunities to just do a lot of things. I mean, my mother made us play the piano, and I was just like, oh, my God, no. I hate it, hate it, hate it. Ten Same. years I played, I played the piano. Um, and then as soon as I got out of high school, I was like done. But believe it or not, when I was living in New York and, and dancing and try, struggling trying to be a dancer, I lived above a piano store. And I started working for one of the producers on Broadway just as a job. And he, he um, I was sitting in the office and the musical director of Bubbling Brown Sugar came into the office and he was spastic. He was cussing and fussing. His copier had not shown up. And he needed this music copied. And I said, oh, oh, I could copy that for you. And he said, no, no, I need some of it transposed, you know. And I said, well, what is that? And he said, well, you know, you're taking it from like a C uh, to a, a B flat. And I was like, oh, I could do that. I think I could do that. And he's like, no, show me, you know. We went in and sat at the piano and I showed him, you know. And he said, okay, I'll pay you $25 a page. I was like, $25 a page? And he had a stack of pages. I was like, ooh, $25, 50 7500 $200. <laughs> I was like, oh, yes, I could do this. And I ended up copying music. I didn't even know I knew how to copy music, you know, and transpose music. But from those 10 years of piano lessons, you know, I had to call my mother and say, Mama, (laughs) forgive me. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Right. I I feel like I had a similar experience with piano as well. Can you tell me a little bit about other experiences that you had or personal connections that you've made throughout your career that have been very, very fruitful for you? All my connections have been fruitful. I feel like God has ordered my steps through my whole life. Mm-hmm. Even when I wasn't dealing with him, he was dealing with me mm-hmm. and ordering my steps. Um, I mean, I, I feel like I just kept walking and the doors kept, they kept opening. Mm-hmm. And so I just kept walking through them. I went from medicine to dance. And then in dance, I said, oh, I need to eat. So I got a, got a job in a producer's office and mm. I, and I told him, I said, you should hire me. I'd be asked that to you. I can type and file. And thanks to my mother again, I knew how to do all that. So I, I got a job in his office and it turned out there were nine black shows on Broadway. Wow. And there were no black manager, two black managers, one black manager and one black press agent in this union that you have to be in to do a Broadway show called ATPAM, Association of Theatrical Press Agents and Managers. And so I was actually working for a black producer of Bubbly Brown Sugar. His name was Ashton Springer. And Mr. Springer came in one day and he said, come and go with me. And so I went with him and we went to the At Pam office where the guy in charge 
was um, saying that they were getting ready to bring five minority, quote unquote, apprentices in. And um, they wanted to interview me. They walked me into the union and I, and I, got, a, I got into the union. And, and, and I was supposed to be an apprentice, but then Joe Papp and Manny Eisenberg were bringing a show that Intozaki Shange had done out in the West Coast. They were bringing it to Henry Street and then they wanted to bring it to Broadway. And she had told them, if you don't have a black woman manager, you can't even take my show to Broadway. Hmm. And at that time, there was a white guy that was the manager. And so they came to me and took me to lunch and they said, listen, if you take this show, we'll hold the contract, but we need you to go. We want to take it out on the road. And I said, oh, oh sure, you know, how much you paying? <laughs> and so I ended up even, you're supposed to apprentice three years and maybe, maybe a year into it that this happened for me. And uh, I went out on the road with Color Girls and um, that was an amazing experience. I, I worked on Broadway on the show first and then right, I went yeah. and took a show out on the road, First National Company. And that was really the beginning of a theatrical com- career for, that I did for probably another, you know, 10, 12 years um, on Broadway, mm-hmm. off Broadway, national tours, international tours. This is the producing role too? Well, mostly managing, company managing. managing and then inevitably mm-hmm. I became a general manager and then inevitably I became a producer. Okay. Wow. Um, and so I didn't, you know, I didn't, I didn't go to school to do it. I you know, I didn't even really know about each thing that I was doing. Until you did it. Yeah, <laughs> you kind of learned along it. the way. Everybody is not going to be a singer or a dancer, but they'll find their place and space to express their creativity. And so there's so many careers around the arts, you know, and I found mine in managing and producing and presenting. And, you know, there, there's when you think about backstage and the, the managed stage managers and the lighting designers and costume designers and property managers, I mean, there's so many opportunities to be around the arts. And then there's always the academic world. I mean, I, I've just come from many sessions where the university, um, uh, the university professors who have you know, brought all their students to come to IABD, I mean, how fantastic is that? Um, where they're exposing these young people to more. Now, most of those young people aren't going to be dancers, per se. You know, they're not going to, that's not going to be their professions. But the discipline of it and the exposure of seeing all these masters at work, seeing them on stages and, and realizing that there's so many more opportunities for them out here now. And now with all this technology, I mean, in a way, it's kind of leveling the playing field. So I think we have a job to be mentors. I think that we all have to be able to give back to young people, and I think we need to spend the time with them, whether we were gifted to teach them or whether we were just gifted to spend a moment with them sharing our own stories, helping them understand they, they'll, they're creating their own stories now too. And so one of the opportunities I had was to work for the Negro Ensemble Company. Uh, we called it NEC. And the Negro Ensemble Company was a, a real ensemble. It was a repertory company. So they had that a stable of artists that they paid all the time. And they would just do a play after play after play. And they would, you know, just re- change roles and become these new characters. And they produced, I mean, almost all of the black artists at one time that were in Hollywood, opening up uh, avenues for black people in the movies and in television, were NEC alumni. Um, Esther Roll and Moses Gunn and 
you know, Diane Carroll, I think, was even a part of NEC, but all the way down to Samuel Jackson and Denzel Washington, um, uh, who played Tina Turner, uh, Angie, Angie Bassett. Bassett. I mm-hmm. mean, they were all at NEC when I was there, you know. We, wow. were, we were still pumping it out. There wasn't an ensemble then, but they were still doing plays and stuff. So that was a really great experience. I kind of came off of Broadway and... I felt like I really wanted to work for the Black Theater, and so I went into the Negro Ensemble Company and worked there for a good while. Uh, actually, I had two stints at the Negro Ensemble Company. Yeah, but, that, I just want to highlight really quick because your story was is so vast and it's so yes, I mean the the progression that you made is remarkable, and I, and I think people look at art in a narrow mind and say, oh, okay, I want to be a dancer or mm-hmm. I want to be a singer or I want to be an actor, but they don't see that that you can get to the managerial positions and those producer positions and there's a lot of creativity and stuff that goes into those too well I was gonna say I, mm-hmm. I, I differentiate between being an artist and a dancer an mm-hmm. artist and a singer an artist and anything an artist is driven by their passion mm-hmm. you, you have to do it even if nobody's paying you you'll do it anyway and figure out how to make some money you know so I've always felt like I'm an artist and I was an artist when I was dancing. I was an artist when I was a manager. I'm an artist as a producer. And, you know, I'm still an artist as a in, in, as an independent consultant Absolutely. to the International Association of Blacks and Dance. <laughs> you know, <laughs> so my whole career, um, I, I, I had a wonderful opportunity to, to create a, a, a magnificent festival in Atlanta called the National Black Arts Festival that was, I mean, for that time, it was for such a time as that. Um, yeah. 1988, they did the first festival, and I was the artistic director. And so I got to actually partner with the Black Arts Festival in 1995 or four, 1994. Can you go a little bit into the, the process of founding that, the, the National Black, Black Arts, Arts Festival? Mm-hmm, specifically, like how that came to be, like when you made those connections and when you were all inspired to make this happen? Well, Michael Lomax was the, the county commissioner of, uh, he was the chair of the county commission, and Fulton County was the largest funder of the arts in, in Atlanta. And I think as a, as a student at Morehouse College, um, Spellman used to have these festivals called Penny Festivals, and Bernice Johnson Reagan, who was the leader of Sweet Honey and the Rock, mm-hmm. she was at Spellman at the time, and she was producing these festivals. And so I think Michael... My, my understanding is that he was inspired by that and thought one day he wanted to create a black a national black arts festival and so it was kind of his vision but when they when I was moving I just happened to be moving to Atlanta I was married to a man and he was from Atlanta and that's one another how God just orders your steps I was not ready to live New York leave New York and so I under duress I moved to Atlanta <laughs> but my best friend Latanya Richardson she said to me you know um, you need to get involved with the Black Arts Festival. She said, they asked me to write a paper on if you did a national festival, what should the theater component be? So I helped her think through and we wrote it all up and submitted it, never knowing that I would at some point be down in Atlanta implementing what we wrote. Um, But they had gone, they had hired Mickey Shepard and Leonard Goins who were up here uh, running an organization called 651, an arts center, which is still going on. They did a feasibility study, went all over the country to say, if we did a black arts festival, where should it be? And everybody said Atlanta. Yeah. So that gave Michael the impetus and his and the validation he needed to get the resources. And so in 1987, there were four of us, four full-time staff, 
But my vision was so much bigger than his. Matter of fact, I really fought hard and I always felt like it should have been called the International Black Arts Festival. Oh, wow. Because how could you talk about black people without talking about Africa? African people, And the diaspora. I mean, my goodness. I had been traveling all around. I was like, are you kidding me? We need... Anyway, the National Black Arts Festival was very international. And my vision was... You know, I always believed, I always called myself a cultural warrior. I believe that culture is the great equalizer because everybody has culture. Yeah. And no culture is better than another culture, even though we had been immersed in a Eurocentric culture. That it was no better than anybody else's culture. And so it led me on my journey of discovering people of African descent and the connections, the, the contributions that they have made to the world, world yeah. but All how many cultures have influenced the African culture. Yeah. And so it, this, this was a, a tremendous platform to be able to, to demonstrate those connections and to, you know, inspire all the people. I, I didn't know Atlanta, so I didn't realize it was such a black and white cities. I just yeah. went everywhere and said, we're doing this Black Arts Festival. If you want to be in it, what do you want to do? You know, I went to all the white galleries, you know, I went everywhere and we were able to get every kind of genre. Oh my God. That first festival was, Oh Lord. Opened a lot of people's eyes. Never been, I've never seen anything like that again. Um, that first year we started with a festival on peach. I mean, a a parade on a parade on Peachtree street. We stationed African drummers all the way down the parade route. And we started with the Moko Jumbies, you know, Dave Robeson, bless his soul. He brought all the, the you know, the, do you know the Moko Jumbies on the stilts? Oh, that yes. It's a very yes. religious ceremony. Yes, yes, yes. They opened the parade and we had every genre of music and dance. We had all of these wonderful celebrities in horse-drawn carriages kind of at the front. Wow. Remember Cecily Tyson, Harry Belafonte? Mm-hmm. You know, all these amazing people uh, in each of the disciplines. And um, by the time we got them folks set up, I looked down that street and there was a sea of black faces. I mean, but it was, there was a lot of white people there too, but there was so many black people. It was just, and we started that parade. And as I walked down that street, I cried because I could not, I just knew it was going to be a hit. That's crazy. Once Once that parade started, I said, this festival is going to be a tremendous success. The visual you just described, I'm, I like saw all of that. Like, all wow, of I, it. I see the tears. I see the, oh the, my God. The, the, the storytelling with the parade. We That's had crazy. four or five different African dance companies from all over, including Africa, but most of them, you know, based here in the country. We had Caribbean. We had Latin America. We had every continent wow. and culture represented and ended up with hip hop. The boys was on roller skates nice. with the boom boxes, <laughs> nice. you know. That's great. Uh, it was fantastic. That's great. It was a great experience. Um, what do you think is the key to longevity in the arts? I think the key is is helping young people find their gifts and their talents by exposing them to as many things as they as you possibly can so that they're able to find a way to express themselves and where they they discover this gift and talent and you just help nurture it, you know, and it may, it might not be playing a piano or singing a song. It might be in making a rubric cube work, or it might be whatever it is. Our job is to 
feed them and nourish them and help them understand that it's not about you. You were given a gift and a talent so that you could give it away and make someone else's life better. And the more you give, the more you receive. So I believe the arts will always be here and there'll always be people doing the disciplines that we call art. But I believe that it's about the creative spirit and it's about the presence of God in our lives that gives us these wonderful opportunities to express ourselves and to find our freedom in expressing ourselves. Uh, and, And we find that freedom in giving it away. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Culture Cipher podcast by Heritage Works. This activity is supported in part by the McGregor Fund, the Community Foundation for Southeast Michigan, the Michigan Council for Arts and Cultural Affairs, and the National Endowment for the Arts. Additional support is provided by the Kresge Foundation and the Fred and Barbara Erb Family Foundation. To learn more about Heritage Works and the work we do in the community, visit heritageworks.org.